4: listening to the bunker and that was the sound your ancestors made as they perished in fire and water during the end of civilization yes there was a significant amount of suffering but amazingly humanity persevered humankind survived the apocalypse burrowing into the earth like ticks and out of the ashes of the old a new world has arisen a terrible world of pain and suffering your world i don't
5: envy you listeners my name is David, my name is also David, and my name is Tom, and we three are the last remnants of a world long forgotten, clinging to existence, even now, waiting for something, some purpose, to breathe life back into us, to invigorate us, to give us meaning once more. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Tom, but putting on a good show for
2: our listeners is enough meaning for me. Uh, so, Dave, how's the traffic looking out there? Well, wastelanders who were forced to travel above ground during these icy summer months will be in for quite a surprise, as a large herd of human travellers appears to be heading north towards some unknown destination. What is it that drives these nomadic wanderers? Where are they going? Are they moving towards or away from something? What do they know that we don't? My advice is to not think about it too much. Thanks, Dave. And now here's an old advert from a time when life made sense.
1: position in the police force is more than your average job. Join and you'll spend time on operations, peacekeeping, humanitarian missions, training and awesome gunfights. The police force is here to protect. Our primary focus is making Britain a safer place to live. And with your standard issue, marine armour and recoil operated semi-automatic anti-material rifle with chainsaw attachment, you'll be a part of that peacekeeping process. As a member of the police force, you'll learn more about yourself. Take part in some of our new lab tests, including body enhancement and personality correction you will receive free education and training as well as healthcare and ration stamps and unlike civilians you will even be able to vote with Britain overrun with radicals and free thinkers the police force needs you more than ever so sign up now the police force is like a video game but way better
5: you're listening to the bunker Coming up on today's show, we've got an abridged episode of the Monster Hunter series. Today's topic, edutainment, Mystic Martin, Marisha the Gardener, and of course, we'll be dusting off another old interview with a storyteller from the 21st century. This month, Interview Bot will be chatting with documentary filmmaker David Fidelli. But first, breaking news! Yes, you're quite right to scream, Tom, because we've just received word
4: that a large pack of clones have been sighted at the Royal Albert Dock, where they have apparently set about rounding up human survivors into large refugee camps. We go now to our teenage reporter in the field, Emma Sterling. Emma, how's the situation down there?
0: Well, David, the mood is tense here at the dock, as large groups of men, women and children are being ushered single file into the camps. Through the crudely constructed barbed wire fences, I can see rows upon rows of animal skin tents, and several high watchtowers boasting rudimentary but effective searchlights. A deep trench has been dug all around the camps and filled with tree trunks that have been sharpened into spikes.
4: And what's happening to the people inside the camps?
0: For now, the survivors are being counted and sorted into categories based on age and gender, although the clones are perhaps not the best at judging such nuances.
4: Now, of course, we call them clones, but... They don't really look like us, do they?
0: No. The creatures are, in fact, semi-sentient humanoids that were grown in vats and originally intended for organ donation and low-fat binding ingredients in baking. They are usually grey-skinned, 8 to 10 feet tall, and have been known to consume human flesh and bones.
4: Fascinating stuff. Uh, Thank you, Emma. We'll talk to you again
2: a bit later. Thanks, Dave. Emma Sterling there, the newest addition to the Bunker team. I think she did a good job. But I wonder how she feels about being out there in the wasteland, or we're safe in here. Well, whatever she's thinking and feeling, I'm sure it's irrelevant. I mean, in theory, I like the idea of recruiting wastelanders to help produce the show. But I can't help feeling like we're, I don't know, taking advantage of her somehow. Nonsense. When we found Emma, she was lost and alone, frantically trying to pull
4: her leg out of the large iron jaw of a bear trap.
6: Had I not rescued
4: her... She would surely have perished. Yes, but it was your bear trap in the first place. Nevertheless, she is indebted to us, and what better way to repay that debt than to contribute to our radio broadcast? And if you listeners out there would like to contribute with your thoughts or your stories, get in touch. Full contact details at the end of the show. Now it's time for today's topic, action. And joining us today to talk about this topic is Luke, who some of our more observant listeners might remember from last month's story segment. Luke, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure, David. Love the show. Now, I have to say, I'm a little surprised to hear from you today, given that the last time you called in, your sister had just come back from the dead and was tearing at your flesh with her tiny nine-year-old teeth.
7: That whole thing was just a big misunderstanding. I had assumed my sister had died merely because she had stopped breathing, had no pulse or heartbeat, was pale and cold and completely stiff, staring blankly at the ceiling. But she got better. Oh,
4: well, I'm happy to hear that.
7: We're both perfectly fine now. Better than ever, (laughs) in fact. Ah, great. So today I would like to talk about action. In storytelling, action is used to make the reader or listener feel like they are participating in the unfolding events of the story, as it describes what is actually happening. Action is movement. If you were to take a step back and look at life, Unburdened by the bias of your conscious brain, all you would see is movement. That's all life is. When humans such as you and I (laughs) have agency, they have the capacity to make choices and to act on those choices. That's the theory that action is the movement of a conscious being. But because most of our actions require the will to act, we are responsible for the consequences of those actions. Most people inadvertently perpetuate mass suffering through uninformed or selfish actions, but worse than that, we allow this suffering to continue through our inaction. Of course, we don't want to actually help others in need, as that would require time and resources, but we also don't want to feel guilty about our decision to willfully ignore those people. If only there were some way to relieve ourselves from the burden of responsibility. If only our actions could be the will of some other being, and not our own. Well, have I got the thing for you. Introducing the plague! It's the brand new craze that's sweeping the nation. I've got the plague, and now you can have it too. One little bite from me or my family will inject millions of tiny sentient microorganisms into your bloodstream. It's only a matter of hours before they pop in your brain and take control of your cognitive functions. That's right, no more responsibility for your actions. Every step you take will be directed by the plague! The plague! Finally, you'll be free to enjoy life without the weight of your guilt holding you down. You'll feel light as air without a care in the world because nothing you do will be your fault. Breeze through life like a fluffy cloud with The Plague, 100% proven to reduce stress. The Plague, forget about the inevitable torment of your fellow human beings. There's literally nothing you can do to stop it when you have The Plague. To get The Plague, simply wait for us to come to you. We're growing in number every day and nothing can stop us. The Plague, because action without consequence is bliss.
2: You're listening to The Bunker, a radio broadcast for the doomed inhabitants of the Wasteland. Coming up, we've got more news on the concentration camps. But first, a game, and more specifically, a quiz from our archive of old world
4: stuff. Uh, This is the How to Be a Productive Member of Society quiz, which was an annual mandatory test issued by our beloved and dearly missed world government. So Tom, let's jump right into it. Question one. How important is the world government to you? Is it very important? Important, neither important or unimportant, unimportant or very unimportant, and I'll remind you that there is only
5: one right answer. Oh, what's the point? I'm sorry? Seriously, what is the point? We've been stuck in this bunker forever! I can't take it anymore, especially now I know that there are people living out there in the wasteland, not just surviving, but actually living! I've got to get out there myself!
4: Wow. That's the most insane thing I've ever heard you say. And that's saying something.
5: Dave, come on, you know what I'm talking about. This place is killing us. Yeah, Tom, metaphorically, but the
4: wasteland will kill us literally. Listen to Dave, he's talking sense. He's come to terms with the fact that all his grand ambitions are as obtainable as dust in the wind. I've,
5: I've made up my mind. I'm leaving this place and you can't stop me. You're right, Tom, I can't stop you. Oh wait, yes I can.
4: Dave, lock him in the kitchen, will you? Still to come, we've got a short story, an interview, astrology, gardening, and lots of nice music. But first...
6: In an episode of the American cartoon, Archer, Cheryl Tunt hears the music of the soundtrack while the other characters do not. She tells herself to ignore it because it's not diegetic. Non-diegetic sounds are not part of the story world. If the music had come from, say, a radio playing in the background, then the sound would be considered diegetic. The music is there to illustrate the mood of the scene to the audience, and in being extra-diegetic, it exists on the level of the narrative, not on the level of the internal world of the cartoon. The fact that Cheryl can hear it is a fourth wall breaking irony, or joke. When you read a novel or watch a play, which we assume you all do, you're not experiencing one level of narrative, you're experiencing many. A novel has characters, but you don't literally see what they're doing, as you would in all those fancy plays you definitely watch. Therefore, a novel has at least one extra level. The narrator A first-person narrator is a character in the story a part of the diegetic world. But the words that he or she is writing are not necessarily diegetic themselves, as the other characters may not be privy to them. For instance, Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, a classic of the hard-boiled noir genre, is told in the first person by private detective Marlowe. He talks to us directly. But why? He doesn't give a reason for telling us his story. He just charges in like he already knows us. In contrast, Russell Hoban's post-apocalyptic novel, Ridley Walker, is narrated in the first person too, but is set down in the form of the protagonist's memoir. So narration can be diegetic, extra-diegetic, or halfway in between. Just like soundtracks in films and television can be within the world of the characters, outside of it, or fade from one to the other. But we can also go deeper into fiction too. Lots of stories have fictions within fictions, like Itchy and Scratchy in The Simpsons or the Jack Slater movies in The Last Action Hero. This allows the audience to directly comment on the conventions of its genre and medium. By playing with the different levels of fiction and breaking down the barriers between the diegetic world, the narrative and our reality, authors can draw their audience into the story or hold them away.
1: is trapped. Spencer, on my mark, I want you to lay suppressive fire while James and I make our move.
7: How will I know when?
1: Oh, you'll know. I'll make it clear. How can we ever know when? Spencer,
3: what's the interface between stasis and action?
1: Oh, no. Not this again.
3: That question doesn't make sense, James. The act is merely the extension of the will, so really the question becomes when's our purpose? No! No.
1: I told you to. No more metaphysical debates in the field ever again, or I'll bring you both up on charges. But sir, what are we supposed to do? You do what I tell you, when I tell you. Don't think, just act. What does that mean, sir? We may have the will to act, but the act itself is a different state that defies description. Awareness of the action paralyses the mind. Just by being conscious, we're forced to examine, and and in
3: the examination, we pause. Shut up. I can't agree, James. There's no essential difference between the will and the act. See, I can hold my hand still or move it, but I can't intend to move it without moving it. I'm just fooling myself. There's no way to identify the dividing moment between moving and not moving because it's a misconception. As the ancient said, between the motion and the act falls the shadow. Enough!
1: To hell with you! And to hell with your ancients.
3: I'm sorry, sir. No. What's your
1: malfunction? You two meatheads are talking like action is driven by consciousness. Don't you see? You don't decide to do something and then do it. That's the exact misapprehension that leads you to search for the interface between the will and the act that you admit doesn't exist. The will seated in the unconscious impels the act. Whatever your post rationalizations or reflective crises, the inescapable truth is that the act precedes the thought. Consciousness is simply awareness of what has already presented itself upon the stage of the mind. We don't have will, we are will. It's only through the cognitive illusion of self-awareness that we hear the echo before the voice.
2: If I made myself clear. Yes, sir. Sir, right. Let's go kill something. Why the bunker. I'm it's really Hey Dave, what's troubling you? We knocked him unconscious and locked him in the kitchen. Oh yeah. I mean, I know he was out of control saying those crazy things, but still, I feel guilty. I don't feel guilty. Oh, okay. But maybe you should go and have a chat with him
4: and uh, see if he's feeling, you know, less mad. Oh, all right then. So, listeners, Tom's fate is tied to the bunker, whether he likes it or not. That's the thing about fate. It's inescapable. Just ask our astrologer, Mystic Martin.
8: Welcome, children, to the sound of my voice. I am Martin the Evanescent, mystic astrologer and pacifist warrior. I have good news and bad news. The good news is there's a new moon in the sky, and it's shining moonbeams down on all you lucky Geminis. Soak up those moonbeams, Geminis. Soak them all up. The bad news is, nothing any of you do will ever really mean anything in the vast, empty darkness of the universe. You're all just killing time before it kills you. Ciao for now.
4: Coming up now, today's short story, The Monster Hunters. This is actually an abridged episode of a series that ran sometime in the 21st century. It was written and performed by Peter Davis and Matthew Woodcock and... David, we've got a slight problem. What now? Tom has escaped, somehow. After oh, crying out loud. Tom, where are you?
5: Ha ha ha, you'll never find me.
4: You're in the air vents again. No. Use the broomly. Sure. Oh, guys, really? I'm not
5: in the air vent. Ah, oh! Hey! Hey, stop it! Oh! Oh! You guys, that, that really hurt!
2: It's for your own good. Look what you've become, Tom. You're denying me my human rights. I demand to be allowed to leave. Tom, human rights are a pretty outdated concept. I mean... I agree with you in principle, but let's be realistic here. Oh, come on.
5: I'm not changing my mind. I think I made this decision a long time ago. It's just taken me a while to gather my courage. But I'm leaving. You can lock me up all you like, but I'll find a way out. All right. All right.
4: I guess there's really nothing we can do. (laughs) But David, come on. You'll die out there. Yes. Yes, he will. But he'll die a free man. Make sure you pack enough supplies to get you going in your new life, Tom.
5: I will. Thank you.
2: Thank you, guys. What are we going to do now?
4: We're going to play this story. Take two elements. Any two elements. Say, electricity and water. On their own, perfectly harmless. But when you mix them together, maybe in a bowl, dynamite! Roy Steele, his passport says, beast slapper. And Lorimer Chesterfield, walks like a man, thinks like a man, is a man. My name is Sir Maxwell House. I took those two elements and like
9: some kind of scientific blacksmith, I forged them together. Forged them into a team that would look danger in the eye and bring it down with the knowledge of a man and the fist of a man. They are the Monster Hunters. Well,
10: Lorimer, old chap, I like what you've done with the place. What's this over here? Uh, it's a kitchen. Nice. I've got one of those. It's, uh, it's very nice. Yeah. yeah. No, it suits you. Yeah. Thank. Thanks, Roy. Did you put that package on the table? Will you? Done. What do you think it is?
11: Mm, I don't know. It could possibly be from our guide, Trevor Malik Al Hakum. Possibly some of Margot's effects I left.
10: Well, I'd better leave you to it. Wait. This photograph. Who is she? She's quite a looker that that's Margot is it? Oh yes, sorry it's uh, it's just been a while since I saw her. It's all right. She was certainly one hundred per cent a woman, and I should know I've seen a lot of women. Yes, yes, thank you, Roy so uh, how did you two meet? You really want to know? Will it take long?
11: I had been working at London's London University for ten years when she appeared. Her name was Margot. I didn't ask her last name. For me, it didn't matter. I always knew that one day it would be Chesterfield.
6: Excuse me. Is this the Department for Egyptology and Old Stuff?
11: No tea today, my dear. I've got a bun from home.
6: Oh, No, Professor, you don't understand. I'm not the tea lady.
11: No, 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 you're not. Uh, My name is Laura Chesterfield.
6: Yes, I know. It says so on your door, and on the tag in the back of your shirt. Well,
11: you can see that from over there.
6: It pays to have good eyesight. You see, I'm your new assistant, Margot.
11: For the next three years she worked under me, studying that which only a man could teach, Egyptology. She was the brightest woman I had ever seen. When she was in a room, my electricity bill was instantly reduced. And then they would pull the brain out through the nose. Not right, Matt. Hmm?
6: I'm pulling your brain out through your nose. No, I'm pulling your brain out through your nose.
10: <sighs> Those were happy times. Yeah, right. What's in this case? The hooves of Hazel? Did you fellas own a goat? The hooves of Hazal, Roy.
11: Immensely powerful artefacts. Supposedly the last remains of the goat lord himself. we have been
10: asked by the British Museum to recover
11: them from a site they'd located in the Outer Hebrides.
10: So, what, by day you were an academic working for London's London University and by night you were a treasure hunter working on commission? Well, yes, I suppose so. Dodging death at the hands of inescapable doom traps and poisonous blowpipe-wielding natives? Uh, yes. Sounds a little implausible. Can't see it myself?
11: Yes, well, you're not the only one who used to lead a life of danger.
10: Investigating the Anubis sightings seems like child's play compared to some of our adventures. But this wasn't blind man's buff. Unless that blind man could see and was keen on violence. Oh, Roy, I was such a fool. My quest for knowledge, to be the one to best Anubis, to bring back his
11: treasures for the British Museum, I just couldn't see the dangers. Oh, Margot, Lorimer,
10: Lorimer. Don't beat yourself up, man. You've learned the hard way about the dangers of this life. It's like going to Wales. You hear all about it, the promise of great things, and then when you get there, nothing can prepare you for the darkness. Um. So, are you going to open this thing? Uh, I don't know, Roy. Maybe the past should stay in the past. Not on my watch. I'm not leaving you alone tonight. What's in this kitchen of yours? Uh, eggs, a little bacon, some leftover pie. Some right. Cheese. You stay here, I'm off down the wavy line. I'm buying us some man food. You fix me a scotch, I'll be back in no time. No, 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 really, Roy. It's very kind, but I think I'd prefer it. Sorry, Lorimer, I I can't quite hear you. You're breaking up. Fine. Excellent. You like branded instant soup? Uh, No. Of course you do.
11: Oh, Margot.
10: What is it you've sent me? Let's have a look at this.
11: Oh, a letter. Dear Professor Chesterfield... I trust this letter finds you in great pain. Oh My name is Anubis. You remember me, guardian of the scales? We missed the opportunity for a formal introduction when we last met. This is mainly due to me killing your wife. That and your severing of my hand. Speaking of which, please find enclosed my severed hand. Yours sincerely, Anubis. I don't understand. This box is empty. What would Roy do in a situation like this? Oh, yes, have a drink. Oh, thank you. Hang on just a minute. You're the hand! Now what's it doing? Good evening, Professor. I am the hand of Anubis. Uh, yes, well, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Sorry. Uh, well, that's all right. Look, is there a quick way we could do this and you writing everything down? How about one knock for yes, two knocks for no? Good. So, Anubis, how did you get here? Have you an accomplice? Oh, then what? Did you post yourself? Oh, that's very clever. And not very modest. Are you here to kill me? Listen, I wish I'd never opened that bloody tomb. My lust for knowledge has led me to some dangerous places before, but I never realised it could lead to the death of my wife. I wish I could take it back. That's it. I could take you back there. Place you back in the tomb and seal it up again for all eternity. Surely that would be acceptable to you. Do you really need to kill me? Damn. Oh, hang on. What's it doing? L- I must warn you, Anubis, that beneath my lanky frame lies a heart of iron. Pounce on me and I'll...
1: Oh! 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 oh!
11: oh! oh! Unhand um, me, you naughty hand! Ow! That's my face! Now,
10: see here. Lorimer, I'm back. I've got cream of tartar or stilton. Which do you want? The tang of the stilton mixed with the hot water is by the bearded throat of God. Lorimer, you okay? Hang on. Hold still. I need to get this hand from your throat. Oh, oh. oh Christ. This thing's got a grip like my grandmother. Oh. There you go. Oh, thanks, Roy. Are you okay? A bloody great hand was trying to throttle me. That's a no, then. Uh, What did you do with it? I threw it in the corner. Which corner, Roy? Which corner? I didn't know you had so many. That one. Oh, it's gone. Stay absolutely still. It could be anywhere in this
11: room. Anywhere at... Ow! Lorimer, your trousers! Oh! Get it off me, Roy. Before it climbs any higher...
9: Oh, dear. That's
11: no, no use, Lorimer. That fella's going nowhere. The, the tea tray, Roy. Use the tea tray. Quickly, before this becomes humiliating. Got
10: it? Y- yes, I heard.
11: Now, now, hit it. There's
10: no need to explain. When it comes to a beating, you're talking to an expert. Unhand him, you disembodied bastard. Oh, thanks. Wait a minute, Roy. You've maddened it.
9: Look out. Oh. Lorimer, it's trying to kill me in the face. Hold still, old fellow. No, not the tea tray. No.
10: Okay, hold on then.
11: I've got a scroll around here somewhere.
10: But a scroll? What are you going to do? Read to it until it falls asleep?
11: Almost, but not quite. Right. Oh. Ah, got it. Okay, that. now, uh, let's have a look at this. Oh. So, um, oh, thou lord of souls. Oh, thou lord ah. of the tomb. Thou oh. mighty one. Anubis, let this limb be without movement. Let it...
10: Lorimer, Lorimer, it's loosening. This... This is where I come in.
11: No, no, wait, Roy, I haven't finished.
10: I've never punched myself in the face before. It's quite novel. I'll just put this fella back in its box, and we can pop it to Sir Maxwell. What's wrong, old man? I I didn't get to finish the scroll. You can read it later. And in peace. Now this thing's dead. Is it, Roy? Is it? Yes.
6: Trembetska here with a few fun facts about mushrooms. Mushrooms are the fruit of a fungus and are common in most parts of the wasteland. Only 1% of mushrooms are fatal, but the poison switches species every day so you can never be sure. Despite the variety of shapes, sizes, colours and smells, all mushrooms are connected underground like a hive mind stretching out their roots to strangle the planet. Mushrooms first appeared in the Dark Ages, when a strangely metallic meteorite was discovered in Wales. Happy foraging, friends, and may Earth be with you.
2: Thanks, Marisha. Interesting as ever. Just a quick update on the traffic situation. We mentioned earlier that there was a long line of travellers heading north, and we are unsure why that was. We can now confirm that the answer is plague. So there you go. Anyone who guessed plague, well done to you. Full points. Well, guys, this is it. Goodbye, David. Goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, David. Hold on there,
4: Tom. Uh, before you say your farewells, I just want to get the latest from Callow, our biscuit delivery guy. Oh,
5: do we have to?
2: Yes! Can't wait to get this delicious biscuit.
5: Guys, come on!
2: <laughs> Hello, Callow? Callow, are you there? Back! Get back, you foul beast! Hello? Hello? Callow, it's David, David and Tom from the bunker. What's the latest on the delivery?
8: Well, I've encountered... Uh, you ratchet horror! Get back, I say! Meet your doom! I've encountered a slight uh, hold-up, and I'm currently engaged in mortal combat with a pack of radioactive phantom cats.
4: Fantastic. Talk us through the action.
8: The beasts have teeth like axe blades, fur like wire wool, and bodies as big as bicycles. My trusted APA is all that stands between... Uh, Dashing jaws and your precious biscuits! Take that! I've just dealt one, a blow across his forehead. That'll teach him!
1: Are you okay? Kalu?
8: I am alive! I received a gash across my chest! This is brilliant radio! Even... The pain of this gaping chest wound! It really is bleeding quite severely. It's nothing compared to my wounded pride. For every moment I stand here fighting further delays my delivery of your valuable goods. Don't worry about the biscuits, just save yourself.
5: Tom, think about what you're saying, man.
8: Oh, my lord, your voices raise my spirits and remind me of my noble commitment. However fast, I'm afraid I must stand, dark. Conversation! A phantom cat is taking me by the leg and is dragging me across the ground! I've lost my sword and I'm struggling to reach the hunting knife strapped to my thigh! But it's also action packed! Are you sure you can't tell us just a bit more? I beg a thousand pardons, sir, but I fear I cannot do that whilst preserving my life and more importantly, your biscuits. We shall speak soon!
2: Well, that was a stroke of luck. Yes, indeed. And I'm looking forward to finally getting my hands on those biscuits. Mm, I know what you're trying to do. Hm? What do you mean? You're trying to get me to stay with the promise of biscuits.
5: You know how much they mean to me.
2: (laughs) What nonsense! As if we would sing so low. Now correct me if I'm wrong, David. But there are no biscuits in the wasteland, are there? No, you're quite right, Dave, no biscuits at all. Be that as it may, I'm still going. Not even biscuits can stop
4: me now. Duly noted, Tom, it's time for you to go. Nothing more to be said. Right. Well, okay then. But first, more news on the clone camps.
1: Oh, no! Now,
4: the Royal Albert dock would normally make a lovely spot for a picnic, but as of this morning, it's been occupied by clones. Teenager Emma Sterling reports.
0: Things have really kicked off here at the refugee camps, as a second wave of clones arrive. These new clones are larger, with greener skin and what look like ridges on their shoulders and backs. Their ceremonial bone armor mark them out as officers, and this is really the first indication we have that this is more than a simple raiding party.
4: And what's the current condition of the human survivors in the camps?
0: Well, there has been several escape attempts. Many individuals are currently lined up in a row against the wall and... And yes, I don't know if you can hear that, but they are now making an example of the unruly prisoners by firing bullets into their heads and bodies. And now even more prisoners are revolting and it's pandemonium here at the dock as the humans fight back against their oppressors with rocks and large sticks. It's difficult to see who has the advantage here. The humans outnumber the clones, but the clones have superior weaponry. One of the larger clones has just grabbed a human by the hair and appears to be gobbling them up like a fat child eating a cake made of blood and bones and sinew. Wow, that really is horrible.
4: Um... So.
0: Only time will tell how this affects the peace treaty between humans and clones, but in this reporter's opinion, there's going to be a lot of embarrassed faces at the next Economic and Social Council gathering.
4: Uh, thanks, Emma. And now, a lovely interview.
10: David Fideli is an independent documentary filmmaker. His work explores cultural, humanitarian, and social justice issues. His films have been screened at international film festivals around the world, winning numerous awards. His latest documentary, The Land Between, is an intimate insight into the hidden lives of sub-Saharan African migrants living in the mountains of northern Morocco. For most, their dream is to enter Europe by jumping a highly militarized barrier into Melilla a Spanish enclave, on the African continent. Hello David, why did you decide to make The Land Between,
12: a feel-good comedy? No, no, it's not a comedy. Agree to disagree. Why
10: are you a filmmaker?
12: Um, I feel that I totally got involved in making films by absolute accident, through um, through travelling. And uh, eight years ago um, I bought a small video camera um, before I set off on a, on a trip to Papua New Guinea, it was a, a last-minute sort of decision, and I kind of filmed my my trip, my experience, and um, for about four years after that, you know, some tapes sat in a plastic bag, um, and it wasn't until I came to to London about four or five years later that I met a friend, and we edited it into a film. We submitted it to a uh, festival here in London, and, and it won a, a an award at Portobello Film Festival. Um, I had this idea. You know, but it was more sort of this, this, this dream or this kind of, um, you know, romantic notion of, of making films. But once we made that film and once it sort of it won an award, I thought that it was something that I could, you know, seriously consider um, continuing. So since then, it's only been about three or four years, I've kind of become totally addicted um, and obsessed by the, the notion of making films.
10: Your documentaries are minimalistic and observational. Why do you favour this style of filmmaking
12: I think because I never actually, I never studied filmmaking. I'm totally self-taught, and what I tried to do is just observe um, a particular place or a particular reality that I find myself in, and try to, um, in a way, transport an audience or a viewer to feel like they are um, seeing what I'm in, seeing and experiencing. So, you know, when when I experience something, I don't hear. Um, sound effects. I don't hear music. I hear and I see um, what is in front of me. I try to record that and try to um, to transport that to a to to an audience.
10: Your films are largely concerned with exposing injustice and giving the disenfranchised a voice. Why don't you think it's too late for humanity? Wouldn't it be better if you all just gave up now? Save yourself a lot of trouble.
12: My films do cover. Social and environmental issues, and because of that, I guess um, people can say oh, I make depressive films, but I don't have any problem with that. I don't. Ha- I think we are so- our society or our life is so involved and absorbed in in um, not exploring these issues and and, and distractions and, and advertisements and comedy. And I'm quite happy to transport a viewer into this environment and expose them to. Uh, a reality that that, that is happening. Um, You know, if you want to laugh, don't watch my films. I'm still not 100% sure if there's anything interesting or worthwhile about making films. And half of me wonders whether I am better off spending my life drinking pina coladas on a, on a beach in Thailand because I am a negative and pessimistic person. I do see the doom and gloom in the uh, in the world. I have a, a small hope that by making projects like this it exposes people to realities and hopefully a situation can change.
10: How do you go about coaxing these emotional and powerful stories out of the individuals you are documenting? Is it a simple matter of gaining their trust or does it require more unorthodox methods such as torture
12: No, I haven't had to torture anybody yet. I guess the only person that's tortured in the process of making these films is me. Um, The way I work is very, very closely with the people that I'm I'm filming. For me, it's very much about trust. It's about gaining trust, it's about maintaining trust, and then it's keeping the trust going once the the project has finished in maintaining contact and, and not just seeing yourself as a filmmaker who's there to make a film and leave. No, I think we have a responsibility once we get involved in somebody's life the film is finished but the project very much continues and and their reality continues and so my obligation and uh, ethical responsibility continues also
10: morocco ghana Papua new guinea why were you drawn to these places are you just wandering the planet looking for stories
12: Uh, i'm pretty much wandering the planet i guess my the the way that I did get into to making films, as I said, was through travelling, and I kind of use making films as a way to enable me to st- uh, to go to places that I'm interested in and explore situations and stories that I'm that I'm interested in.
10: As a documentary filmmaker, you are searching for truth, and yet film can never be truly objective because the camera is an extension of the filmmaker. So, what is the
12: purpose of your work? I really put everything into my, my work, and I hope that people can, can feel that and can gain something and can not only be informed and not only be educated, but can feel something and can be inspired or motivated to act or to do something. You know, awareness in itself for me is almost useless. Just because you're aware of something, unless we actually do something because of it, um, maybe all we're doing is just participating in this sort of perverse system of filming poverty, going to the cinema with our popcorn to watch poverty, patting ourselves on the back because we've exposed ourselves to that issue for half an hour or an hour, and then getting on with our lives. No, I want you to do something. I want you to act.
10: How long does your species have left on this planet? 50 years. 100 years. 100 years.
12: I don't know how long we've got. on The way we're going, we are not going to have very long on this planet at all. Or if we do, it's not going to be a very nice place to uh, to live in. We live in the short term. We have disregard for what may happen in the in the in the future for for our planet and so forth. So I do think we have a, a total sort of disconnect. More and more are living in our kind of individualistic bubble. So in a, in a way, I'm actually trying to make a film actually to try to reduce. the the disconnect or to reduce the distance um, that we see between our actions and uh, and the results of our actions. But you know, in the end, I think that we, um, us humans I mean, I think we're gonna have to make it. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) I admire your optimism.
2: stay until the end of the show? Yeah, what's a few more minutes?
5: Enough, guys. This is it. Someday I shall return with many great stories to tell you. Stories that I shall acquire from the outside world. I shall bring them back to you as gifts. And then you will want to leave too, I'm sure of it. Until then I'll be cheering you every month. Goodbye.
4: Well, that's probably the end of the show. There's just enough time for
2: my... (laughs) Hello? Who's there?
9: (laughs) This is Lawrence III of the Dionysus Theatre Group. We have captured a member of your tribe, and we wish to negotiate.
4: (sighs) Literally like ten seconds he's out there before he gets in trouble.
2: Now what are we going to do? I'll go and get him.
4: oh yeah hi tom hello
3: take another step and i'll cut his throat
4: she's not kidding
10: rebecca is a genuinely troubled individual
3: i'm sure we can resolve this issue peacefully we have your friend and you have our leader
9: uh nope don't lie to us i'm a trained actor do you think i can't tell when someone is lying to me Lying is like my whole job. Where is Robert Swinton?
5: Oh, we know Robert Swinton. He dropped by a few months ago. Ha, I knew it.
9: Where is he? Is he alive? You killed him, didn't you? Nope. I knew it. Ha, this is the best day ever.
4: Oh, right. So you wanted him dead?
9: Yes, of course. Now I'm the leader of the group. But I'm still going to kill you. Matter of principle and all that. Right. Now, as you can see, we outnumber you. But I want to make a good impression as the new leader, so I challenge you to a duel. If you win, you earn your continued miserable existence. If you lose, you will die. Sound fair? Yes, very fair. Excellent. We'll be dueling with these knives, because it's tradition. And also, I happen to be expertly skilled in knife combat as part of my theatre training. Right, shall we begin? Sure thing.
3: Not so fast. First, empty your pockets and throw over all your weapons.
9: Ooh, good thinking, Rebecca. I like your brain. Uh, yes, I was just about to say that you should first throw me all your weapons. And then you have my word I'll throw you a knife. You can trust me. I'm an actor. Get
10: him, Lawrence. We believe in you.
9: All right. Here, catch. Huh. This isn't like any weapon I've ever seen before.
4: What is it? That is a grenade.
11: Oh.
5: Where did it go? All's well that ends well? It's not all well. The theatre group are refusing to go. They say you cheated and they're trying to find their way into the bunker so they can murder us all. Ah, bummer. Meanwhile, they're outside, which means I can't leave!
2: Oh, what a shame.
5: It's
8: not fair! It's not fair! It's
2: not fair! What is he doing? He's smashing his fists and head against the floor in despair. Oh. NOT FAIR! NOT FAIR! NOT FAIR! The floor is giving way! Tom, look out! Whoa, oh, sh- Tom, are you alright? You've fallen down a hole!
5: Yes, I have deduce that much, David. I, I appear to be in some kind of underground tunnel. Guys, this is perfect!
2: Uh, it is?
5: This must be a way out! A secret escape tunnel or something! And all this time was beneath us! Right under our noses! We have no idea!
4: Doesn't look very safe down there, Tom. Uh, why don't you climb back up and I'll stick the kettle on! No! Just throw down my supplies!
5: And some candles! Here! Excellent! So my journey begins! I'll keep in touch with details of my adventures and I'll come back someday This is madness,
4: Tom. That underground tunnel is probably swarming with all kinds of filthy creatures. What if there are giant spiders down there, or or leprechauns, or even worse, hippies?
2: Don't
5: be ridiculous, David. Leprechauns and hippies are
2: just myths. Tom, I want you to take my lucky pillow. Catch. Oh,
5: thanks, Dave. It's very kind of
2: you. And my lucky saucepan.
5: Uh, that's not necessary. (laughs) Oh!
2: Goodbye, Tom.
5: Goodbye! Goodbye, David!
2: I can't believe he left us. Yeah.
9: Now what?
4: Uh, now it's time for my final thought. Uh.
3: That was The Bunker Without a Care in the World, hosted by David Knight, David Price and Tom Dalling. Starring Katie Turner, Matthew Woodcock, David Callow, Luke Georgewell, James Naylor, Maricia Trembetska, Emma Sterling, Emily Wilden, George Pierce, Anne Bird, Rebecca Silverstein, Robert Hall, Daniel James, Caroline Spencer, Lee Yan Chack and Molly Small. Today's topic was performed by Luke Georgewell. Luke is a wastelander and is, apparently, still alive. Good for him. The short story was The Monster Hunters, written and performed by Matthew Woodcock and Peter Davis. The story was an abridged version of The Hand of Anubis, Series 1, Episode 3 of The Monster Hunters podcast. To find out more, visit themonsterhunters.com and look for them on iTunes. Today's interviewee was David Fidelli. David is an independent documentary filmmaker, traveller, wanderer, dreamer, musician, part-time philosopher and full-time crazy person. To watch his films and find out more about him, check out david fidelicom The music was by Keir Doherty, Jonathan Day, Ben Osborne and Tom Dalling with sound effects from freesound.org. And the song was Invasion of the Dead by Call Me Greenhorn. This episode was edited by Tom Dalling and written by David Knight, David Price and Maximilian John. If you like The Bunker Podcast, please consider supporting its production by making a donation. You can do this on our website, thebunkerpodcast.com. If you're listening to iTunes, you can rate and review the show, which really helps us out. The more ratings we get, the more meaning our silly little lives seem to have.
13: guys, hope you're well. Katie here, just calling in to let you know how I'm getting on. As luck would have it, I was ambushed by these four guys yesterday. Guess what? They were from the People Tribe. You remember I mentioned them? So I hacked three of them to pieces with my improvised bone machete and tortured the other one for a bit of info. Turns out, the People Tribe have a campsite nearby, well, I say nearby, it's on the other side of a great big chasm which seems to split the very planet in two, but here's the thing. The leader of the camp is a huge man, clad in armour with a lion on his breastplate and wings on his helmet. Sound familiar? I'm super excited about this guys, I can almost feel the beating of his dying heart in my hands. Oh, yeah, the smell of blood from killing those guys yesterday attracted this massive lone wolf. And he's kind of taken to following me around. It was a cute wolf? You are! Yes, you are! Look at your face! I've named him Mr. Kuddles. Anyway, that's all from me. Have a good one, guys. Bye! Say bye, Mr. Cuddles. Bye! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.